Hello there. My name is Stefan Frost, the host of Game Devastation, the podcast you are listening to right now. Just as a heads up, sometimes there are opinions on this show. Sometimes there are curse words on this show. Sometimes I just sob for about 20 minutes. I don't know why people keep listening to it. Anyway, all these things are from me. They're not really representative of the company I work for or previous companies that I've worked for. So just a heads up, then that's about it. Okay, legal disclaimer now over. Hello and welcome to Game Devastation. My name is Stephen Frost. Today I am joined with Design Director at Gunfire Games, John Pearl. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm, I'm grand. Uh, just got off of work, hanging out with the kiddo here, and we get to talk today a lot about video game stuff, so I'm, I'm very excited. Um, so first of all, what do you do? What, what is your, as a design director at Gunfire Games, what do you do? Um, it's a... Uh... Day to day changes a lot. Uh, we're actually a pretty small company, at about forty people. So um, actually, all the directors and leads are like working leads. Sometimes you'll have a at a bigger company, you have like a design director that they just focus on maybe writing docs all day, or they work on um, a specific part of the game or the narrative of the game. Um, but I kind of get in the trenches with the uh, the rest of the designers. I do a little bit of level design here. Um, some high level docs, uh, setting up some characters, uh, encounters, uh, working on game balance, things like that. Very cool. So, uh, before we sort of get more into the detail of what you're working on currently, I I wanted to talk a bit about where you got your start and, and how you got into the industry. So what was, what was your first gig and, and how did you get it? Um, my first gig was at a company called Dreamforge Entertainment with an I, <laughs> because it was interactive entertainment, and that was about the year 2000. They were a small company. They did a lot of um, RPGs for PC back in the day. Um, I'm trying to remember some of the titles. The biggest title was Sanitarium, um, which was like a action, or I guess it was more of a, just an adventure game. Um, and I went to school for uh, game art. Um, and it was, uh, I think just time-based media studies was the official term, which involved computer animation, uh, storyboarding, film, video, pretty much anything, moving media. Um, and, uh, a classmate of mine, um, had applied at that, at this company and I applied as well cause they had a couple openings and they brought us both out for interviews. Um, they picked him up right away, but they didn't pick me up. Um, so I kind of, uh, was kind of in this limbo of, I didn't really hear back from other places and I kind of, um, took the time to really focus on refining my portfolio and, and trying to figure out what, what game companies were really looking for. Um, so through persistence, um, and I think, uh, internal persistence on his part, um, of nudging them, they finally, uh, were in a, in a position like they had to hire a 3d artist. Um, and I've been in contact frequently, um, with the art director here and there as I, uh, as I refine my portfolio and they said, I guess they said internally, let's give him a test and see what he can do. Um, and I did a test and turned it in like, I think it was like the next day. Um, and so they, they finally brought me on. So that's, it was a long process. (laughs) Nice. Uh, apparently there is a, a derby going on outside my house. (laughs) I I hear that. I apologize. (laughs) No problem. Uh, so Okay, interesting. So you went to school, you had a buddy that basically got a job, you got in through that, which is awesome. Um, 
And you were just telling me before we got on the on the uh, I don't want to say the phone because we're not on the phone, but it, before we got on the mic here, that you actually just wrote a book about how to get into the games industry. Yes, uh, it's called "Becoming a Video Game Artist: From Portfolio Design to Landing the Job," um, and it comes out uh, September 29th of 2016. Um, and a, a big part of it was um, so as I I've, I've worked at many companies now, um, and I've been in a position for a long time of reviewing art portfolios as they come in. Um, and like I said, I kind of struggled when I first got in the industry to, to get my foot in the door and, and, you know, get a job. Um, and a big part of that, I, I looking back on it was, I don't think the portfolio was geared towards the right stuff. And I, that's, um, the, it was I don't know, 16 years ago at this point. So, um, I, I feel like, uh, for a long time, I was like, oh, well, you know what? They, this company is trying to figure it out. There wasn't a game degree program anywhere. There was barely computer animation programs that were fully focused on that. But so I made a lot of mistakes in my portfolio um, looking back on it. And then I was surprised when I still see those things that I was making mistakes upon like 16 years ago. I still see those things. So I kind of wanted to write a book uh, to help, you know, struggling game artists or people trying to break into the game industry that just kind of don't know how to do it or, or what they need to put in a portfolio or how to even approach it. It's a weird, uh, this industry is super strange because I, you know, I've talked to, I don't know, uh, 20 plus people now in this program and none of them have the same story. No, they, nobody ever does. It's, it's, I would like to call it like a, it's like superheroes. Everybody has a different origin story. <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's, it's very strange. Like I don't, it's, the, it's one of the few industries where I feel like that's the case. And maybe it's like that in movies too, or, or television, but, uh, I think more than anything, it's it's persistence. I know a guy um, who has been trying to get in the industry for a while now, and he finally got in uh, as a community uh, guy at, uh, I think, Six Foot Games. And he's been trying forever. But the I think the difference between someone who's like, oh, man, I, I want to get in, but I don't know how. Is, like He just was persistent constantly and would meet people at shows like PAX or you know, any sort of event where video game people would be at and got to know people and, you know, eventually got to the point of where he was bugging the right people at the right time and was able to get a job. So I think that's, that's kind of a big part of it too. Yeah. It's, it's weird how it's, it's definitely a right time, right place, whether it's talking to the right people or getting your portfolio on right when they have an opening or right when they're, you know, ready to move on it. (laughs) Yeah, no, precisely. Um, so, okay. Um, that's awesome to hear. I'm glad that, you know, I'm a big fan of, of trying to get people that information. So that's great. You're writing a book on it or wrote a book on it. Um, so let's talk about your career from, you know, your start onward. So we, we found out how you got into the industry where, how did you get to where you're at now? Um, so I, that one, that first place I'd worked at Dreamforge entertainment, um, like they were, had been around a while, but, um, it was, there was, there was during the transition from, I'm trying to think now. It's like, I guess the PS2, the transition from PS1 to PS2, the Xbox, um, games were just getting bigger and more expensive. They were kind of a small company. Um, and they just couldn't keep like the, they had a deal with a company. The company got sold to like a holdings company. It's, it's crazy how much this happens, this kind of thing. And then the holdings company sold it off. And then the company that bought it was like, ah, eh, we don't really want this. <laughs> So, um, they ended up closing down, um, and I ended up going to a place called paradigm entertainment 
um, for about four years and some change. Um, and I worked on a couple titles there. That's where I shipped my first game, uh, Mission Impossible Operation Surma, for the PlayStation 2 and Xbox, um, the original Xbox. And I worked on a couple games there. And then I ended up going, uh, leaving there uh, to go out to California and work at another company called um, Stormfront Entertainment. And I worked on a couple games there. Um, things didn't seem too stable there. So I kind of started looking around. And um, a guy I had worked with at Paradigm Entertainment was then working at uh, the pretty new at the time, Vigil Games, um, on a game uh, called Darksiders. And I kind of reached out to him. I was like, hey, is that a cool place? And he's like, yeah, it's really cool. The game's really cool. Uh, the tech's cool. So I, I kind of uh, got a portfolio together and uh, submitted there. And I ended up getting a job there. And that was 10 years ago almost. Um, and then I worked at Vigil Games uh, as a lead environment artist on Darksiders 1. I uh, worked on their the MMO. Um, we were working on the Warhammer 40K MMO for a while. Um, that got shut down got uh focused focused on um darksiders 2 working as the uh studio's technical art director and uh well vigil was uh, one of the victims of thq's uh bankruptcy so which was super unfortunate by the way because <laughs> yeah. i i'm a huge darksiders fan i loved i love oh, those awesome. games yeah um i i played the shit out of the first one uh, quite a bit and uh it was when thq was going through their woes i was like please let somebody by vigil please because it was weird that's what yeah. we were saying too <laughs> yeah i mean for I, I don't know at the i'll tell you this much at the time if i was the head of some company i had millions and millions of dollars that have been like we need to acquire this company immediately but so anyway i'm sorry to, i just want to tell you that but no, can, that's can, great can, to hear <laughs> um yeah it was really strange um like a lot of the other companies got purchased i think it was because they were like about to release something like uh not a knock at their quality or anything but it's like you buy this company that has a pedigree and they're about to release something. It's kind of a, a no brainer for most companies. Um, at the point we were at, we had just finished like the 90 day DLC for Darksiders two, two months previous. And we were just pulling up on a project. Uh, we'd maybe spent three months on, uh, that would probably need another year of development. So I don't, it was, it was in a weird place where to buy vigil games. I don't think it was, it was attractive enough. Um, for for uh for companies just outright buy them but we uh we were actually lucky and um uh the the uh guys who own crytech um approached our gm at the auction um and was like well we don't want to buy the whole company but we can tell you do quality work so uh, we'd like to make something happen here and the uh in austin keep you guys in austin um and then you know kind of pick a pick a small uh handpicked group and I think it was about 35 of us uh, from Vigil. I don't know. I can't remember the total number when we closed at Vigil. But I think 45 of us up to about 40 or 35 to 40 um, then became Crytek USA shortly after Vigil closed, about a month, I think. Um, and then we, we were Crytek USA for about, uh, I think, a year and a half, maybe a little bit more. Um, and then they went through some financial stuff, um, but they seemed to be doing all right. But we kind of said, well, you know what, let's not be at the, at the whim of these, these companies. Let's, let's be the masters of our own fate. And we decided to quit and we ended up getting the leads from Crytek, which were also a lot of the leads from, uh, Vigil. We got together and we're like, you know what, let's just make our own thing happen after we quit. So, um, it ended up being really good. And that's what gunfire games is, is uh, a lot of the remnants of Vigil games. 
So when you guys are at that point, um, I got to imagine that's a little bit scary because you're thinking, okay, well, we need to go out and forge our own thing. At that point, is it just let's make something and then try to shop it around so that people can give us money to back us? Or is it we're just going to make our own thing and kind of just survive off of that and hopefully put something out that'll make us the money? Um, it was, it was, yeah, it was, we had to kind of decide what we wanted to do. Um, obviously like being, uh, like the head of, um, video games or our GM, um, you know, there's a lot of people in the industry. Everybody knows everybody pretty much. And he was like, you know what, let's, let's talk to some, I'll talk to some people and see what we can find. Um, and one of the things, um, that they found pretty early on was, uh, uh, Oculus, um, because Jason Rubin took over THQ, for the, like the last year, he was there for um, Darksiders two shipping. Uh, he had a lot of input at the end because uh, he, he was just coming on and we were finishing it up. So he was very involved in that project. He got to know um, like our leads group there um, and could tell the quality of work we could do. So um, I think after after we quit uh, Crytek USA, uh, our GM David reached out to uh, to him and and we uh, we ended up doing some stuff with them. So that's that's awesome. Um, and Kronos looks great, by the way. I thanks. Um, I will admittedly say I have not played it, but it's because I don't have an Oculus. Otherwise, I probably would have picked it up. But, that's totally understandable. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> they're uh, hard to come by. They're hard to come by. Um, it's also I it's a, a big investment. <laughs> I have a PC that cannot probably sustain the the need for a VR set. But um, anyway, uh, I was watching a lot of videos on it and, um, and checking it out. And it seemed to me that, uh, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed to me that it had more of a, a um, Dark Souls kind of combat feel as opposed to, say, something like Darksiders, which is more like Devil May Cry-ish, right? Yeah. Um, what was the thought process for you guys going into that when you had done something previously that was a little bit more fast-paced, going into something that was a little bit more, let's say, like deliberate? Yeah, it was a it was a very conscious decision um, early on. Uh, there was a couple reasons. One, like one, a lot of us enjoy um, the Dark Souls games, and I think when we started, I think is when Bloodborne came out. So we were all like, yeah. like "Oh man, this is this is good." Um, and we, you know, you get kind of bored of doing the same thing. We wanted to try something different to kind of say like, "Hey, this is it's still in our wheelhouse. It's it's still combat. It's still puzzles. It's still exploration." Um, but we wanted to kind of change up the pace of it. Uh, and then also, um, with VR, it's like, I don't, some, you could probably make a Darksiders type game work in VR, but the big thing with that is just, you have to run at 90 frames a second. Um, and it's, it's a challenge to, to get a game running at 90 frames a second consistently without dips. Um, so because of that, it's like, Hey, one way to do that is reduce the number of enemies on screen, make each enemy more, um, more of a challenge, um, as opposed to fodder. Uh, like a lot of the a lot of times in a dark Siders fight, you'll you encounter these core soldier type uh, enemies, and then a lot of fodder. Where it's like, well, you remove the fodder in most cases, and a lot of times it's like any guy is a threat, kind of like Dark Souls. So it's it makes that kind of one on one combat be uh, a lot more intense, um, and it's 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 kind of a cooler feeling too. It's a lot more um, yeah, like you said, deliberate pace um, to the combat, and it's also it's um. It's, it's very purposeful. It allows you to kind of take in what's going on. Um, it is a third-person VR game, which anybody who has not played it will usually say, I don't understand third-person VR. That's not what VR is. But once people play it, it's very few people say, I don't get it anymore. They're like, oh, now I get it. Um, 
because it, it is very much you're in the world you're watching your character um from a from a perspective that's it's a little unique um because a third person game it's it's you're still kind of removed normally on a 2d screen but because yeah. you're in the world there's almost this level of threat <clears throat> it kind of threat. it kind of reminded me of uh, almost like a resident evil perspective in a lot of ways like you'd run into one area and it seemed like the camera angle would change but you could still the the crappy thing about like the original resident evil was you know your controls would change and then you'd have to kind of you couldn't see at certain angles because of the way that it was. But this, it seems like you can actually adjust your camera to look in a way and see kind of what's going on in the world. Um, one of the things that you kind of hit on was, you know, this is a third person thing. VR is typically kind of like the first person perspective. Um, was that, was this game originally for, the oculus or was it just kind of we're, we're making a game and this one kind of feels cool and then we can adapt it to oculus no it was a uh, built for oculus from the ground up um we had done um another game for the gear vr which is the the uh samsung mobile like uh, it works with the uh the notes and the galaxy phones mm-hmm. um we'd done a game for that called uh, hero bound uh spirit champion and um that had a it was very much in the in the realm of uh like the old school Zelda like uh, Ness Zelda era where you're kind of looking down on a room and it's it's like a singular room and you go through an exit the screen goes to black it fades up and you're in the next room um, and the camera was very still but you could look around um, and we found with that like the biggest piece of feedback we got was um, it's very comfortable like VR can you can make an experience that's very uncomfortable for people um, pretty easily in VR uh, make an experience that's comfortable for everyone is is a little bit of a challenge, and the easiest way to do that is to make a camera that uh, is 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 rather static, and it lets you know the player move their head at their own you know own pace. You know, there's they're they're controlling it. There's no crazy things flying around or anything like that. So it's a lot uh, a lot more comfortable for everyone. And so we wanted to take that concept, but like take it to the next level because the room to room combat. Um, and puzzles it like basically we made puzzles in that game very similar to like a zelda or a darksiders light mm-hmm. um but they were limited to a room because basically you leave a room it fades to black it fades out it's, it's this disconnect between rooms um but we wanted something where you know combat could spill from one room to another um you could find a puzzle element across the hall in a room and then have to remember to go back to the previous room but you could still see that room if you turn your head um so a lot of that was based on that kind of comfortable camera, but we wanted to do something that felt like more exploratory that you could kind of look around. And yeah, definitely we looked at like, um, the original Resident Evil, uh, like Onimusha and even some Devil May Cry stuff to see kind of, you know, what can we do that doesn't move the camera unless the player moves their head, but still makes this, this place that feels like it has a, has a, a sense of like purpose and, and presence. Now, was there anything that um, you would advise people that are developing VR stuff to think about when they start their projects? You know, you were talking about kind of motion sickness kind of stuff or making sure that people, you know, felt comfortable. Uh, What advice would you have for people that are starting out there on VR project? Uh, I guess it's really like decide what what your your market is, because like Oculus has a very nice um, rating system of. Uh, comfortable for most, which is what our games fall into. Um, moderate comfort, and then um, there's another one. It's like it's it's in red. It's basically not comfortable for most people. Um, and, and knowing that um, going into making a game is like okay, well, 
each time you do that, you're splintering an already kind of small market. So I would suggest try to find ways that you can make um, either a comfort level or comfort uh, play mode in your game or just realize you're not going to have, you're, you're kind of cutting your audience a little bit smaller uh, every time you make it more extreme or more uh, intense or a lot of movement. So uh, you kind of hit on this earlier with puzzles um, and designing those things out. How does that work with you guys when you're coming up with environmental puzzles? Because I know in Darksiders you had like entire levels were puzzles sometimes. Yes. Right? <laughs> so um, with this, wh- what is the design process like with you guys? Is it uh, I've got I've got this idea written down on paper. Let's uh, gray box it and and try it out. Or is it just let's just put stuff in and see what works? Or how does that work for you guys? Um, we we did some early uh, like paper paper map stuff, but really because it's 3D and because um, of the way our camera system worked, um, which actually I, I meant to mention earlier is that. Uh, so one thing with the cameras is uh, one thing we noticed on the old games uh, like Resident Evil and Onimusha. Um, and the reason I think a lot of people have like a negative connotation for that type of camera is the camera would arbitrarily change. Like just you're in a room and you go to the other side of the room because it's a still basically a still camera it, to see the rest of the room. The camera would swap just arbitrarily in the what felt like arbitrary um, points in the room. Um, so what we did was we wanted to make sure that if there's ever a camera switch, there's a doorway or an arch or or the the path gets a little bit smaller so the player can start to mentally understand a switch is happening and that's why it happens. Um, and I, I brought that up, I bring that up because that had a big part to do with how we laid out the levels. Um, cause it's like, you couldn't say, Hey, I want a Vista in these, all these three rooms because what it really meant would be the, the camera would be pointing in the opposite direction. So it's, it's a little hard to explain how it works. Um, but if you picture like two rooms right beside each other, the cameras are are, are going to be on opposite walls so that when you transition, the player is, is in the camera when you go into the next room where you were previously looking. Um, so a lot of that stuff comes into play when, when, we, uh, when we started playing these levels. So like I said, we did some paper maps originally, but then a lot of it was just like, okay, well, let's get some spaces in here and some cameras in here and see what actually works. Uh, going from room to room is it like is this is this good you know we're gonna have to make this room smaller because this camera if it, if, it, if you look from left to right in this room and then you transition to the next room while you're looking right will the next camera pick you up or do we have to move where that location of that door is or whatnot uh, another thing that I kind of wanted to talk about since you guys were sort of a new company and this is a brand new IP and a new game where did that process start with you guys what was there one person that was like Guys, I've got this idea. Oh my God, it's going to change life. Or was it sort of a, a group think? Or you know, what was the the start of the game? How did that begin? Um, a lot of it actually comes from our creative director. He um, he's kind of like a renaissance man. He he uh, programs, designs, uh, directs a lot of the art as well. Um, so he's he's very versatile and he has a, a lot of game ideas. Um, he was the GM and creative director on the first two Darksiders as well. And, uh, and he was the, I, I can't remember his title at Crytek was like the president, but he's also, he's basically always a creative director, um, on our games. So he, he had an idea originally, like we all kind of agreed, like, Hey, we should, a lot of people are doing tech demo type stuff. Let's make a game. <laughs> that was our first, our first thing. Like what kind of games do we like? We like cool RPGs and, and really atmospheric worlds. Okay. What is that? And then he 
just kind of came in one day. He's like, Hey, here's what I got. <laughs> and it's, it was, it was very similar to the final, the final product, which usually doesn't happen in game development. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, something, uh, that I also wanted to talk about was, um, the, the specifics of combat. You were saying how, um, Bloodborne was like a big influence and stuff like that, which by the way, totally my game of the year last year. I love oh, yeah. the hell out of that game. Um, that game is so great. You want to talk about great level design too. Uh, yes. those <laughs> dudes yeah. just nail it. I don't know if you're playing dark souls three right now, but it's, yes. <laughs> it's also quite good. Um, we can nerd on that for like an hour after, if you want, but, uh, sure. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, yeah. So, uh, the, the combat feeling, um, how is it that you guys were able to make the combat feel good? Cause I feel like there are different ways to do this. And this is something that I find really interesting because if you look at, um, stuff like, uh, you know, I worked on Wildstar, um, and that was like a big focus for us was making sure that the combat felt really good, but that combat versus Darksiders versus Devil May Cry versus Darksiders versus whatever it is can feel different in different ways. So how did you guys go about making your combat feel good? Um, I mean, we took a lot of the stuff we learned from Darksiders. I mean, even though the the moment-to-moment combat was very different, um, a lot of the same rules applied. Like um, like during Darksiders, we developed um, a lot of like rules for combat. Um, like we came up, we have the concept of like insider-outsider um, characters where like we would mark characters as if they're big or small and then they would move in. Um, like I think it was only like we had like a we set an inner ring and then an outer ring um so that the players never overwhelmed but they always feel like they've got some pressure um so like there would be two small guys um in your inner ring at a given time that could possibly attack you and then the outside guys would not actually attack you they would kind of strafe around until um it, it combos with what we call a pressure system which the pressure um every attack has a given pressure amount um, and there's only so much pressure that can be put on a player. So um, in Kronos, it was there was a, a set pressure number. So if a guy is going to come and attack me, um, there's only like, like a, let's say a, a, the pressure number was 12 for the, the player in Kronos. You could have um, a t- an attack on a guy be a 6. And then you could have another character who also has an attack that's a 6. They could both validate that attack at once. Um if if they were in range um, and all their other validations met, um, but then they would do that attack and then they would have a cooldown. Um, and usually, what that meant would be then the next guy would check for for the pressure and says, "Hey, there's no pressure." And it might be a guy on the outside. He would move in, and then the inner guys would move out. Um, so it creates this really dynamic um, combat system. Of it feels like, oh man, I'm just getting I'm I'm getting overwhelmed here. But you're never actually overwhelmed because it's all controlled behind the scenes it's not like four guys are attacking you at once over and over and over again and getting frustrated it's it gives a real rhythm to the to the game with the cooldowns with the pressure um so that was a big part of that we did that on darksiders and that's how we're able to kind of man like that's why hectic fights still are manageable like in, in that type of game i think a lot of other uh heavy combat games do that as well yeah definitely it's a, the kind of the ticket system of uh, yeah. am I, am I cool to attack? No. Okay. I'll just kind of yeah. hang out here. They do that in like Batman sometimes too. You know, it's like yeah. dudes, there's a lot of dudes hanging around and around, but only like three are attacking at once. And yeah, totally. I think that definitely helps because when you feel overwhelmed constantly, it's kind of, uh, um, and yeah. actually not to bring up 
Dark Souls again, but I'm going to do it anyway because <laughs> what the hell. So I'm playing. I just beat the Deacons of the Deep. Did you oh, do yes. that? Yes. Okay. <laughs> that is the creepiest fight I've ever played in a video game, by the way. It's just really good. A bunch of monks with glowing red eyes in a very dark area just kind of slowly coming towards you. It's great. But um, that one, I think, is a is an interesting example of kind of the opposite of that in a way. Yes. <laughs> but but it's it's an in, it's induced by you, the player, right? So you can go up and hit dudes a bunch. For people that have not played it, by the way, just so I'm not uh, nerding out uh, alone here. Um, there's how many guys? Probably like 30? like yeah, it felt like 20 at least yeah. at a given time. 20 to 30 at a given time, and they respawn. So you kill them, and they're not really that difficult. Yeah, they use like two hits, most of them I found. Yeah, it, it's pretty pretty easy to kill them. But because there's such a large amount of them, if you're wiping through six of them, you're then tired, and then guys will hit you. So it's a matter of picking off guys that you want to hit because there's one guy specifically as a glow on them that you're supposed to hit to kind of damage the boss as a whole, which is kind of a mob in that case. Um but yeah, that one was super interesting because it, it took the antithesis of the boss fight, which is normally just one guy and you want to focus that one guy down. This was the opposite of that. Um, so anyway, just yeah, definitely. There. Yeah. Yeah. It was, that was a really cool fight. It was, uh, yeah, it's funny the, the stamina, um, in that game, it makes all the difference in the world for balancing combat for them. Cause you, you could play and be like, Oh man, like this game would, might be easy. I don't know. It might be easier if there was no stamina, like because yeah, imagine that that's game. a huge part of the the strategy of get in, get your hits in, but save enough stamina to get out. <laughs> right, and and I think um, that might be an, uh, that's an interesting discussion to what was what is that game like without it? You know, is it still as fun? You know, yeah, uh, definitely. There's <laughs> there's a lot of people that that I've talked to are like, why don't they make an easy Dark Souls? And it's like, well, I mean, they could, but I don't know that it would be as fun that I think that they do this great example of you can opt into the difficulty in a way like, yes, it's very brutal, but it's also, you can learn and figure that stuff out. And I think that's uh, sort of what the validating thing about that game is, is once you beat it, you feel like you could lift up a truck at that point. So, uh, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> anyway, let's get back to, to stuff. That people are talking. Um, so, uh, you were talking about RPG things and there's a couple of things that, that I think RPGs need to have to, to feel good. Um, one of them is a solid progression system, which is something that you guys have in the game. So what, what means, uh, what is a solid progression system to you? How do you create something that makes players want to continue to make their character better? Um, I, I think it's really just, it's gotta have, a, I don't know, fast enough turnaround on reward um, but not a gimme. Um, and it's, it's definitely feel like in a way that you earned it or that you can work towards it. Um, I, I do think that's one of those, uh, great, but also like bad things with like dark souls is that it scares people off. Is that like, it's, it's one of the few games out there where, you know, it, you put all this work in, but it could all be for nothing if you don't get back those souls, if you die. Um, and I, I think that's a super punishing approach to it, which is perfectly fine in those games. But like, yeah, like I think, having the ability to get that get a reward from um your hard work or at least i don't know like i'm i I like a lot of weird games like i enjoy clickers because they are the numbers just go up right (laughs) any of those tapping games um just because it's it's you're managing it's they're basically like the distilled version of of any carrot on a stick rpg mechanic Mm -hmm. um but i definitely think there's that that reward and then there's the reveal um, for, you know, keeping people interested. Um, I think, I don't know, I think like 
the design, the world design visually as well as design design of it is, is hugely integrated. Like it's um, to me, it's almost just as rewarding, like in, in world of Warcraft to get to that new zone as it is to hit, you know, the next level. It's so I think it's like you build that, that world and then you have the smaller, um, treadmill going of just like progressing your character, but then also finding cool things in the world to reveal to the player uh, along the way to keep them going. Yeah. I feel like Darksiders did that actually pretty well. Like there would be sections of the world that looked completely different, even if they weren't you know, cause it was the modern day sort of stuff, but then you would also get into these huge cathedrals and you'd also have, and they were very like brightly colored, but like different bright colors, which is kind of nice actually. Um, so yeah, we, uh, we spent a lot of time with uh, the color keys in the last couple months of that game. Just like we changed a lot of the coloring just to be like, this is different. You've got to have this area. You got to get that kind of like reboot visual reboot every so often. Otherwise it's just going to be repetitive visually and not going to be interesting. Yeah. The, the zones that kill me the most, cause we, uh, on Wildstar when we were working on that, we, we made sure that we, uh, cause we always talked about zone fatigue, right? Being in yep. an area for too long and then players are like, Oh my God, if I see another cactus, Oh, you know, so yep. <laughs> we wanted to have sub zones that, that look different as well. Um, wow does this as well. So if you go into like one area, it's like, this is the demon controlled area. It looks like this, this is the, you know, whatever death Knight controlled area. It looks like this. So, uh, that's definitely a big part of it. Um, and I think, who did it? Uh, the the thing that I've run into the most, and this kind of drives me nuts, is like swamp zones specific, specifically for me on a personal level are always like, ugh, because there's there's no variance in swamp stuff. It's like a swamp is you're just walking around in like muck, yeah. and there's some vines and trees, and it's really hard to get anything that looks visually different in that unless you're putting like ruins or or something. But that one. For anybody that's developing games and making swamps, uh, I challenge you to make something <laughs> that looks visually interesting in those because if they're too big and too long, I mean, even like Dust Wallow in WoW, I was just like, oh my gosh, if I see another tree that looks like this, I'm going to go nuts. But anyway. Um, the, the the swamp though in uh, God, this, the second expansion, their first expansion, um, the, the swamp that was right after the Hellfire Peninsula that was a good swamp with the giant mushrooms and the blue. Yeah. I always thought, I always thought that was a great take on a swamp. <laughs> they also had one too in Draenor that's, um, Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I know which one you're talking about. I can't remember it, what it's called though. It's like red and they have like giant mushrooms and stuff yep. like that. And it's, but that one is like, Oh, okay. Wow. This is not the typical thing. So I guess there we go. Proving myself wrong there in the short amount of time that we were talking. That, <laughs> Sorry. That I didn't is, mean to... <laughs> that is kind of interesting. How dare you, sir? Is this uh, the part where you sob for 20 minutes? I, I've been wondering. I've been, I've been wanting to find that. I haven't found that yet. You haven't found that episode yet? No. I might I might just put one up of uh, me sobbing for 20 minutes just to say <laughs> that that's actually accurate. Or I could change the intro to that, but that would that would take effort. Um, so, okay. Um, back to this stuff. So we, we talked about progression. Um, another big part of RPGs for me is, is the story part. Um now, again, I didn't play Kronos, but uh, I'd heard that there's a cool twist in it, which is yes. awesome. Um, how do you guys tell good stories in, in video games? Because I feel like this is uh, another area where it's widely varied depending on the game type. Yeah, it, it was very different uh, for Kronos than it was uh, for Darksiders. Like Darksiders 1 and 2, it was very much like, here's a script. Here's, 
you know, this, this entire, you know, list of cutscenes we have to do and all these unique things. And we have to get all these like different characters together and, and write this really complex story. And we actually went in almost the exact opposite direction for Kronos. We wanted to still have a good, compelling story, but we didn't, we didn't want the, uh, like, one of the big things we found with both Darksiders games was um, as we developed them, like you really couldn't see the final game until it was like all together because there was so much riding on, oh, you have to do this and this transition, this part of the story transitions you to here. And that's why this makes sense, um, where it was really hard to see it like early on. Um, so with Kronos, we definitely wanted to have, like I said, like a, some sort of cool story with a nice hook, um, especially like a, a twist in it. Um, but, but overall we wanted to keep it relatively simple. I think there's, I think there's like three, maybe what I would consider maybe three cutscenes in the entire game. Um, and then there's like, I think it's three NPCs that you interact with, um, that you get some of the narrative from. Uh, so a lot of it is, is, uh, kind of the, the Dark Souls approach of there's lore on the items. Um, there's lore scattered around the world and you get a little bit of flavor from the NPCs you talk to. Um, and then you can kind of piece together. Like it, it, I really like that approach because it, it's basically the it's the player's choice of how invested they want to get in the story. Because I know some people just want to get in and just wreck shop and not actually like I don't care about the story. I'm clicking past cutscenes. Um, but then there's people who just I just they just want to find as much of the lore in a game as they can. Um, so I, it's definitely doing that where you spread it out through NPCs that are actually all optional. Actually, one of them is not optional, um, but they're pretty much all optional. Um, and then this story, little elements are scattered on the items that you don't have to read. They're also um, in these books and tomes that you can you can uh, go and read in first person and actually read the book and flip the pages um, in VR, which is pretty cool. Um, but it's all in there, and that's kind of how we, we kind of spread it around. We try to find ways to kind of just siphon it out here and there um, at points where it was either there's a little bit of a lull or there's been a lot of combat. Let's find a way to kind of here's something a little different. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's difficult because there are some, I mean, games have audiences that are somewhat segmented when you play them. I think WoW is a great example of having lots and lots of audiences that, that are within their, their own audience. So it's like, I'm a huge lore guy. I'm a huge dungeon guy. I'm a huge pvp guy and within there some of those people care about story and some of them don't um and there are games that i've certainly played that and mmos specifically where they're giving me lots of lore and background about a, co a collect quest and i'm like i just i don't care like <laughs> yeah. i just want to go pick up the things so that i can get the reward um but yeah i think opt-in stuff is is always great because there are those people out there that just love to hear the background on what kind of steel swords are made of and you know, <laughs> th that sort of stuff. Um, I wanted to also talk about um, advice that you would have. This is sort of related to your book, I guess, but um, advice that you would have for, we, we can talk about designers and artists because you've, you've okay. done both. Um, how would you advise people that are looking to get into the industry to get in these days? Oh, man, it's, I, I, my first piece of advice to anybody is like, is it, it's just really what you want to do because there's a lot of competition out there. Um, find more than ever for less jobs than there's maybe been in a long time. I don't know. I, I, I go back and forth and I'm not really sure of the state of the industry. I feel like there's 
just looking at Steam, there's a million games out that come out every day, apparently, from uh, indie studios. So there are probably more jobs, but there's, like, less big to medium-sized company jobs. And I think there's a lot of, like, three or four four-person studios uh, making games. And maybe, I don't know how you get into those. I, I guess you just have to know people. Again, it always goes back to that for, uh, for uh, game jobs, it seems like. Um, but I would say, like, you know, make sure that this is something you are really passionate about. Don't don't come at it casually because you'll never make it. It's just a sad truth of it. Um, and then find what you what you're good at and what you enjoy, and then just drill down on that. There's not a lot of. <clears throat> I don't find there's. It's weird. I, I go back and forth on this as well, where it's there's not a lot of people hired to do generalist jobs anymore. I remember. 15 years ago, it was like, oh yeah, 3D generalist. That's not really a position anymore. Everything's become so specialized of like, this is a character artist. This is an environment artist. This is what they do. This is what a level designer does. This is what a narrative designer does or a mission designer does. Um, Just because games are so big and they have so many moving parts that you almost need these specialists. But on the same token, it doesn't hurt to have those other abilities because it makes you more valuable. But it also... If you, I don't know, it's weird because if you present it, I find like if you if you go at it and like for an artist and you're like, hey, I'm going to do one character, I'm going to do one animation, I'm going to do one environment, your stuff's watered down and you can never compete with somebody who's doing characters all the time. Same goes for any of those disciplines really or like, oh, and I'm going to have one concept art and I'm going to have uh, one, one, one V effect. And it's like, no, like the people who deep dive on the specifics will always have a stronger portfolio because they learn from the previous work. They build upon that. Um, but if you're jumping around, you'll never have a, a deep, um, robust portfolio that you need to get a, to get a job in the game industry today. Yeah. I think, I think that's accurate for, you know, bigger size companies because you have, uh, if you're looking at a game that comes out, that's, I don't know, uh, like uncharted or something like that. They, they have, character guys and that's all they do is just character artists or they have prop artists and they just make, you know, pots and guns and TVs and all sorts of stuff. Um, but then, you know, I think you have smaller companies that do kind of rely on people that can do multiple things just because they don't have the money to pay for, you know, all those things. So if you can like really the, the likelihood is if you want to be a generalist, it's probably best to look at smaller companies, but they're not probably going to be hiring as much because they're smaller companies. But yeah, it's, it's weird. Like if you look at the game industry in the past 10 years, even 15 years, uh, steam has really changed a lot of what game development is and, and can be. And same with the Xbox live and, um, you know, Sony's online service as well means that, that you can have these smaller teams make pretty cool games because of tech with, you know, like the Unreal Engine and um, with all these sorts of advancements and sound recording and all this sort of stuff means smaller teams can make these sort of things. So a big part of it could be that you just kind of teach yourself what these engines are like and, and go through it or find people that are willing to give unpaid internships and things like that so that you can just get in and I, I, you know, personally, I, I've found that, um, knowing the game development process is like a huge asset for, yes. for people yeah. to get in and, and figure stuff out. Like I didn't, uh, I knew that when I, I got in and I got my first gig that I wanted to do game stuff and that I was really excited to do it. 
but um i didn't know about things like i don't know submitting to sony versus submitting to microsoft and bug types and certification and but then also knowing about um you know what a milestone was <laughs> or yeah. you know small things that you know you or big things i guess that that you should really know about but you just don't know when you you're not getting in and um, you can kind of get a taste of that as like an alpha tester in games and, and kind of see the game development process and like, oh, why is everything just white and, you know, not understanding the gray box process. And yeah, um, but yeah, mistakes are like a huge thing, man. Like I, I've done so many of them and, and learned as a result of that, that I feel like um, somebody was asking me and they're like, oh, you started at Blizzard. You know, have you learned a lot? I'm like, you know, I, I'm not making as many mistakes there and and they're not making as many mistakes. So I don't, I, I feel like I'm not learning as much actually <laughs> in a weird way. Like, yeah, I feel like the, the places that I've learned the most have been the companies that have uh, fucked up a lot. And so <laughs> I, I then get to learn from those mistakes and, and go, Oh, okay. I, well, I won't do that again. And I think that actually makes you a, a better developer going through that process. Anyway, uh, Something else I want I wanted to talk about uh, really quick, and then um, we'll, we'll probably call it a day. Um, you had a, a lot of experience creating environments and doing level design and stuff like that. Do you have any kind of big rules for level design or, or environment creation for games? Hmm. Um, I know it's a very broad question. Yeah, but. I'm trying to. I, I just I don't know. Like uh, I, I think just set up and like what the player, I always try to think about anytime I approach any, any level or any art or anything really, it's like, well, what's the player going to see and, and really use that as, as a kind of a litmus test of like, is this cool? It's like, Oh, I can make this really cool tower, but it's the, you know, it's hidden behind these mountains because the player is much lower in this level or things like that of just like, you know, just trying to figure out what's really going to make an impact for the player uh, when they're in that that portion of the game um, and then building kind of to that and then figuring out like cool ways to to bring them through a level to to put them in, in an area where they might get the nice kind of open up vista um, or just get like peekaboos for the big vista um, just kind of trying to figure out ways to guide a player through a level that's not just a straight line now when you say peekaboos uh because it sounds like a very technical term. It is very technical. It's, yeah. <laughs> that is, I'm effectively, that's effectively a, like a reveal, right? You come a, around. Yeah, you kind of get a hint of it at least. Or like there's like, there might be a huge vista around the corner. But you start to see like maybe there's a, a hole in the wall or something. And like the observant player or the, the way the camera's set up, you're like, oh, wait, what's that? And then you kind of turn the corner. Oh, that's that. I mean, Uncharted 4 is, actually Uncharted games are amazing at that of, of giving you a little hint of something big. Like either like this door is like propped closed on the other side, but you can kind of see through there. Like, oh, wow, I wonder what that is. And then you go up some stairs and, and take a right. And all of a sudden, wow, this is an amazing vista. Um, so it kind of like kind of gets your like it's like an appetizer <laughs> for the yeah. for the big visual moments in the game. Um, and trying to find ways to kind of sprinkle those through. Uh, something I learned that I always found kind of interesting uh, was from a guy I worked with named Tim Kane, who worked on the, the Fallout series uh, was one of the head programmers on it and he he would talk he said that he had learned everything from level design from Walt Disney um 
because the way that Disney laid out his parks was he had these things called weenies. Yeah. Oh, I've, I've heard this. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating because there's a book on that. I can't remember. I think I met the guy who wrote that book. I feel like at one point, but yeah, yeah, the the weenies thing is (laughs) go ahead. I, I, I can't remember all of it. I'll probably do it a disservice. Well, so yeah, the idea is that, um, you know, you want your dog to follow you. You, you throw a little like weenies on the ground and he starts eating them. And then, you know, you get to the point of where you want him to go. Um, and the idea with it, um, was like the castle in Disneyland, um, is, is a weenie or the Matterhorn is a weenie or what. Um, but the idea when you get to those things is there's something to do at this big point that draws your attention in. Cause you're like, Oh man, that's a massive ass mountain in the middle of Anaheim. <laughs> we should go check it out. And you go there and you know, there's a bobsled ride on it. And if you go to the castle, there's, you know, Disney characters around there and hanging out in shops and stuff. So, um, in level design, I think it kind of works like that too. If there's a giant, you know, uh, castle with like a skull on it, there better be something cool there because the player is probably going to want to go check it out. If it's some big thing on the sight line on the, the horizon line. But he had kind of relayed the the weenies thing to to level design in that regard, so I always thought that was interesting. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard that one before. That's it is really good. It's it's definitely like anybody who wants to be a level designer. There's, I know there's a book out there, and I can't remember what it's called. Um, the worst, but I it's like I heard about it like ten years ago, and they it's the the whole weenie thing and and Disneyland, and it was really good when I kind of read through it back then. Yeah, I, I in no way take credit for that. That was uh, Tim Kane had relayed that one to me, so. Um, yeah, kind of interesting stuff. Um, so, uh, one last thing, I guess, good sir. Uh, is there anything that you want to plug in particular or talk about that you want people to check out? Um, check out Kronos. If you get an Oculus, if you, uh, <laughs> that's what I, I always tell people. Um, let's see. Uh, I have that book coming out for those interested in, and, you know, thinking about what to put in a portfolio. Um, the big thing with that book that was really exciting for me was I, reached out to a bunch of people I'd worked with or kind of met um, along the way in the last 16 years and interviewed them. So it's not just me standing on a soapbox telling you things. There's a, there's about 20 different uh, industry professionals who have multiple years under their belts. Uh, I go through an interview, like kind of their their advice as well. Um, so that was, that was really exciting to get like that much help from the industry. I think there's a lot of people out there that would like to help those coming in, uh, but don't know how, but that actually, I think, should help people a lot, um, getting those different perspectives. Um, I'm trying to think, uh, gunfire games is hiring now. Um, we're ramping up and I can't talk about anything else we're doing yet, but we are, we're working on several projects now. So it's pretty exciting stuff coming down the pipe from us. So keep an eye on us. Okay. We'll do. That sounds awesome. I was going to ask you actually before we did that, but damn it, you cut me off. I oh, can't, can't ask anything. I, I can, I can act like I didn't say anything. You can ask me. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> uh, well, I don't think you can. I was going to say, what's the next oh. project for you guys? But, uh, yeah. there we go. It's all right. I'm, you know what? I'll just keep track of Twitter. And when you guys have some cool information, I'll, I'll check it out. There. Cool. Uh, all right, good sir. Well, thank you so much for stopping by. And if you guys are interested in hearing more Game Devastation episodes, you can find us on iTunes or you can find us on patreon.com backslash Stefan Frost or on Podbean. Uh, we're all over the place. Just search Game Devastation Podcast online. Thank you so much for checking out the show. Adios, guys. Adios.